I'm John Doberstein, Senior Editor at No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the No-Till Farmer podcast series brought to you today by Pivot Bio. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Pivot Bio for sponsoring today's episode. It's time to rethink nitrogen. Pivot Bio Proven replaces nitrogen fertilizer with microbes that adhere to the crop's root system and apply nitrogen each day. 2019 performance report data shows Pivot Bio Proven consistently outperforms synthetic nitrogen fertilizer year over year, providing corn growers improved yields and a more dependable nitrogen supply that isn't lost to the environment. To read the performance report, go to pivotbio.com. For more information on Pivot Bio Proven, text the word PROVEN to 31313. Since its founding, the West Texas A&M Dryland Agriculture Institute's mission has been to help researchers and educators to develop practical and workable strategies for improving the sustainability of dryland agriculture systems worldwide. For many, many years, the Institute was led by Bob Stewart until his retirement in 2017. Stepping in now is Craig Bednars, a Texas native who has been appointed as director of the Institute jointly by West Texas A&M University and Texas A&M AgriLife Research. The Institute has also been renamed as the West Texas A&M Semi-Aired Agriculture Systems Institute. For this episode of the No-Till Farmer podcast, Craig talks with No-Till Farmer about his appointment, the big changes in store for the research program at the Institute, and the renewed focus on promoting no-tilling and cover crops that growers should start to notice later this year. Tell me a little bit about the history of this Institute and how you got involved with coming on board. Well, the Institute uh, was established, I think, in the early to mid-90s by the university. The the first director of the Institute was Dr. B.A. Stewart, um, who you may have heard of. He he had a very long and very productive career, primarily with the USDA ARS. Uh, He spent uh, most of his career with the ARS. And he was actually the director of the uh, USDA Conservation and Production Laboratory at Bushland, which Bushland is just west of Amarillo. It's in this Amarillo Canyon, Bushland area. So he was the director there until 1993 when he retired. He came on board with WT, and he was really the first director of of the institute. And uh, he was the director until he retired from that just a few years ago. So he really had you know a long career with USDA as well as the West Texas A&M, a very productive career. Uh, so the institute at that time was was uh, the name of the institute was the Dryland Institute uh, here at West Texas A&M University, and at that time it had more of an international focus, I believe. So when um, Dr. Stewart retired, the, the university decided to. Uh, uh, I guess renamed the institute to the Semi-Arid Agric- Agricultural Systems Institute, and also changed the description so that it had more of a regional focus for the for the Texas Panhandle, and uh, also gave it more of a research focus, or that was enabled through the uh, com- uh, conversion of it to a joint appointment with uh, Texas A&M AgriLife. So this position currently 
is a joint position, a joint venture with West Texas A&M University and uh, Texas A&M AgriLife in the uh, in the Amarillo area. So really, um, it was last summer um, I started talking to uh, the department head here and the associate department head about this position. And and um, to make a long story short, I applied for it, uh, interviewed for it, and then was offered the position. Um, oh, I think it was about April of this year. So. I'm just really excited to be here. Uh, when I read the position description the first time in the agronomy newsletter last June, May or June, I just thought to myself, wow, this is the perfect position for me. Uh, that's exactly what I told my wife. And it took a while, but uh, anyway, it ended up here. And I'm glad to be here. What about this job made it a perfect position for you? Well, it had a it had a focus on irrigation and, and uh, irrigation management and crop water use. It's really along the lines of crop physiology, uh, cropping systems, uh, and it also has a teaching component as well. So uh, in previous roles, uh, I I have uh, served as a a faculty member in previous roles where I had a teaching appointment. So the opportunity to get back into teaching, not only at the undergraduate, but also the graduate level was also something that I felt like would made it a perfect uh, position for me as well. But a lot of the work that I've done in the past is focused on uh, crop water use and irrigation management, and uh, so I've got a lot of experience in that area. So, so I really mm-hmm. felt like you know it was a good fit for me. So briefly, what is your background as a, a researcher instructor? So I'm a native of this area. I grew up uh, on the South Plains on a small cotton farm just uh, outside of Lubbock. I received my BS and MS degrees from Texas Tech. In 1991, I moved to Fayetteville, Arkansas to begin a PhD at the University of Arkansas and completed that a few years later in 1995. Uh, my first position after graduation was with uh, Mississippi State University. I was an extension cotton agronomist for them in the Mississippi Delta. did that for about a year, and then I moved to uh, Tifton, Georgia, and I worked for the University of Georgia for uh, as a as a cotton physiologist or as a research cotton physiologist for the next ten years. Did a lot of irrigation research in Tifton, Georgia. You wouldn't think an area that receives 50 inches of rainfall annually would be interested in in irrigation or irrigation management or or efficiency. But uh, as you may know, um, you know the coastal plain has very coarse textured and shallow soils. Uh, they don't have much of a water holding capacity, so irrigation pays in that in that part of the world as well. And uh, they don't have um, just an unlimited supply of irrigation water as well. So certainly they're interested in more efficient use of the water resources that they have. So in um, 2006, I thought I was going to retire from from the University of Georgia at one point in my career, but you know life uh, changes. And in 2006, to make a long story short, I moved back to the Lubbock area and began working in a joint appointment with Texas Tech University and Texas A&M AgriLife there in the Lubbock area. Uh, I was in the plant and soil science department at Texas Tech, and uh, that's where I started teaching uh, crop physiology, irrigation management, soil and plant water relationships courses, and also continued my research on the irrigation management side through Texas Tech and through Texas AgriLife. In 2010, Bayer offered me or came to me with, uh, with an opportunity to lead their cotton breeding program for uh, the West Texas area. You know, at that time, there was a lot of interest in the cotton or the seed industry in developing cotton varieties with enhanced drought tolerance or water use efficiency. Bayer's approach at that time was a, was a native enhancement of drought tolerance. 
and uh, they wanted me to be involved with that, So, which was a great opportunity. I really enjoyed that. I uh, worked in their breeding program for the next 10 years and, and really just did that basically until uh, I came on board with WT uh, just a few months ago. So what are some of the, you talked about some research instruction and service program expansions that you would like to see. So what does the future look like to you as far as these programs go and what you want to accomplish? Well, first of all, I'd like to be through this position more accessible to the people of the of the Texas Panhandle. So, you know, again, um, you know, this position has really been kind of rewritten. Uh, it has a has a research component and a small outreach component. And they they want this position to be more accessible, more visible to the people of the Texas Panhandle. Um, so, I've already actually been out to several growers in the region talking to them about uh, water use on their farms and no-till and and cropping systems that they utilize and how they manage their water. And that through those conversations, that's really driving um, how I'm going to set up my research program. Uh, it'll basically get launched here probably in the fall. So anyway, I'm, again, I'm probably going to focus uh, on uh, no-till and cover crops and extended fallow for dryland cropping systems in this area. Also, as far as the, the students in my class, Classes. I want them to have a better understanding of, of you know, how mo- how water moves through the soil plant atmosphere continuum, and how to more efficiently uh, manage water uh, when it's possible. I've had the the pleasure of working, uh, you know, Missis- the state of Mississippi, the state of Georgia, and of course back here in the in the Texas Panhandle. And the the one thing that is that is um, I guess common among all of those areas, they're very different in terms of uh, crop production, what they grow. Uh, and the, the amount of rainfall that they receive is different. The soil types that they grow their crops on is very different. But the one thing that is, that is uh, unique or, or common about all three regions is irrigation pace. They they all irrigate heavily in irrigation pace. And I think uh, uh, more education on you know crop water management, uh, soil water, soil and plant water relationships and and um, you know how water is utilized by the plant, how water moves through the soil, uh, can lead to um, hopefully a group of uh, managers, crop managers, crop consultants that are more efficient with the water resources that we have in this area. So irrigation pays, but irrigation is overutilized, I think, in pretty much um, anywhere irrigation is used. What is the goal of? Uh, I was reading about the WT125 plan to become a regional research university. What is that that project about and uh, why are they pursuing that? So um, the WT-125 plan, um, first of all, WT historically has been more of a teaching university. And uh, WT-125 is a vision for the university to become more of a, a regional research university. So WT is still very much a teaching university, and they're going to maintain a teaching university. That's their strength, and they're not going to walk away from that, but they want to add to that the research component. So they want to become you know, a real powerhouse in this region for, for research, for helping you know, solve the problems of the people, primarily the growers, uh, in this region. Uh, and that, is, again, is the reason this position was uh, really refocused um, to, to include the research component and the outreach component as well. 
So again, the short, the long and short is, is it's just a vision to become a more of a research, a regional research university right. for the people of the Texas Panhandle. We'll get back to Craig in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Pivot Bio, for supporting today's episode. It's time to rethink nitrogen. Pivot Bio Proven replaces nitrogen fertilizer with microbes that adhere to the crop's root system and apply nitrogen each day. 2019 performance report data shows Pivot Bio Proven consistently outperforms synthetic nitrogen fertilizer year over year providing corn growers improved yields and a more dependable nitrogen supply that isn't lost to the environment. To read the performance report, go to pivotbio.com. For more information on Pivot Bio Proven, text the word PROVEN to 31313. Now let's get back to Craig as he shares his thoughts on how water utilization challenges in the Texas Panhandle can be addressed how crop rotation, no-till, and cover crops fit into the picture, and the latest news he's heard on the development of drought-tolerant crops in the area. So what challenges do you see with water utilization on farms in your area, and how would you approach them? And, and feel free to share some anecdotes that you might have had with the farmers you talk to. You know, sustainability in this region you know, will occur when, well, back up a little bit, you know, uh, you know, this area is a big production agriculture area. Uh, we grow lots of crops. We grow corn and cotton and wheat, uh, our primary crops. We grow lots of forages. You know, it's also a big dairy industry area. There's a big dairy industry here. Uh, beef cattle are, are big in this area. I think uh, I heard a statistic where 25% of the, the fed beef cattle in the produced in the United States are produced right here within 100 miles of the Amarillo area. All of that requires water, a lot of water, and all of that water comes from the Ogallala Aquifer. And uh, if you've, uh, you know, if you live in this area, you know that the saturation thickness of the Ogallala is declining, and it's been declining for years, and it's continuing to decline. Sustainability is not going to happen until, um, you know, the the, the uh, saturated thickness of the uh, Ogallala is stabilized, and that's not going to happen unless we're pumping less or not pumping at all from the Ogallala. So, so really, that's that's what the focus of this research program is: is you know to be able to uh, to pump less, uh, to be more sustainable in this area, we're going to have to do a better job of capturing uh, the rainfall uh, the, the, or the precipitation that we receive. Of course, that may become in the form of snow in the winter time, or or you know rainfall in the spring, or or what have you. So. And to do a better job of capturing the rainfall, it's going to require uh, no tillage. It's going to require cover crops. It's going to require, you know, extended fallow periods and those sorts of things. So, again, we're going to have to change what we're doing, change our mindset, change our practices to be sustainable for the future production in this region. I know there are some no-till and cover crops and some of these conservation tools used in certain parts of Texas and in certain places, there it's not there. What do you think is hampering further adoption? And are there any things that you want to try to do to to increase the use of those tools? Yeah, I think again, some sort of conservation tillage has been looked at in this area for a lot of years. I think the general thought is is that uh, that cover crop is going to require water in itself, and, and you know this area doesn't have much water. 
Uh, this is a semi-arid region, and uh, they don't want to waste water on a cover crop. Uh, it's not going to make money. However, I'm, I don't believe that that's necessarily the entire story. Those cover crops are helping us also to capture rainfall, uh, reducing runoff, reducing you know soil erosion. So they are help, helping us to capture rainfall uh, you know, during the growing season or during the uh, the winter months. And I feel like that the you know the the balance in terms of uh, soil moisture capture would actually increase if though if we incorporated cover crops and no tillage into these systems so so there's going to be um, this research is going to have to be done on on a large scale a lot of it's on grower farms I'm also working to establish some some no-till plots uh, at the uh, Bushman station they're, they're going to have to be large plots have to have a lot of monitoring equipment to to monitor soil moisture status and of course rainfall uh, so we can we can uh, monitor you know rainfall capture throughout you know the the study period and of course there's a bit, there's going to have to be a big economic component to this as well so I've been told by growers you know that dryland continuous dryland cotton production for instance uh, it just doesn't pay you know they're going to make maybe a half a bale three quarters of a bale at best every year and uh, through conservation tillage practices and through um, you know, maybe some extended fallow periods, those yields uh, would easily increase. A lot of growers believe, or a lot of people believe, that if, if you don't have a crop in the field every year that you're making less money. Whereas if you if you actually were allow, allowed that crop to, to cap, or that, that soil to capture rainfall for uh, one cropping system season and then came back in and planted a crop, your yield would be much better. Uh, and economically, the numbers uh, uh, would be in your favor. Uh, as a grower. In our e-newsletter, Dryland No-Tiller, we've had some, some articles about people no-tilling cotton and you know, making it work pretty well. So mm-hmm. I'm sure there'll be some, some challenges, but you know, there seems to be some evidence already that it is certainly certainly viable. I think growers are really at that point where they're being you know forced to look for for ways to do things different to change because you know economically things are just not working out for them. I know that the the federal you know the farm bill program and the crop insurance programs have really encouraged growers to plant a crop every year. Of course, a lot of growers uh, lease land from a landowner that probably doesn't even live in the area. That's also a challenge uh, for a lot of growers uh, in terms of you know being able to change or, or being flexible uh, in their farming operations. And all of those things are changing. Uh, so more and more growers, I think, are, are starting to look at this uh, more seriously. And uh, I think the time has really come for this research to not only investigate how we can do this, but demonstrate the best ways to do that. Uh, again, through the outreach component of this position, uh, hopefully we'll be able to extend that uh, that information to growers and, and drive some change for, for dryland cropping systems in this area. There seem to be some promise about drought tolerant crops and the role they could play in helping uh, growers be more successful, you know, regardless of the, the drought conditions and the lack of moisture some years. What's your understanding of how, where the research and the availability of those tools are right now? What's what's the future for drought tolerant crops in your, your opinion? Well, you know, a lot of the companies, the seed companies, are, are heavily invested in are investing in uh, new varieties development, uh, and they're and they're and they're looking at either uh, 
you know, transgenic traits or native traits uh, that will uh, improve the stress, the overall stress tolerance of crops. And of course, drought tolerance is is, uh, is a big one. I really feel like with the the uh, the tools that we have for new variety development now, the molecular tools, the genomics tools, I really feel like we're going to be able to uh, identify uh, some sources of drought tolerance uh, and incorporate that into uh, you know the the germplasm that growers um, plant in their fields. Uh, it's it's going to take some time. It's going to take a lot of investment, a lot of money, but. Uh, I really feel like that the varieties that will be coming out uh, in the uh, in the future, in the long term, will be uh, 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 better varieties in terms of their uh, drought tolerance, for instance. Of course, the, the question is, is you know, what are the companies going to charge for those varieties? And and uh, you know, in, input costs are are certainly a concern for growers as well. So, what do you feel have a feel for which? crop has the most potential as far as drought tolerance go or if there's a certain company that seems to have an edge or mm-hmm. is further along? Well, um, um, you know, cotton is becoming more and more prevalent in this area. And, you know, just cotton is, you know, um, a more drought tolerant crop um, in, it, in itself. Uh, so you know we we grow a lot of corn in this area and, and other crops as well, but but um, cotton is becoming more and more prevalent and uh, you know the main reason for that is is that uh, uh, you can make um, you know more cotton with less water than you can for a crop like corn, for instance. So cotton is um, you know already a drought tolerant crop, but uh, again you know the companies are really focusing on discovering. Uh, you know, new sources of drought tolerance in cotton. And uh, as far as is there one company doing a better job than another one, I I don't know if I want to get into that, but they're all focusing on improved drought, drought tolerance in their crops as well. So, so again, I see, you know, more cotton you know, coming into this area for that very reason. So if you had somebody in the area, you know, where you're going to be doing research who's interested in no-till, cover crops, trying to improve soil health. They haven't really pulled the trigger on it, but they're interested. Mm-hmm. What kind of resources or tools do you suggest they seek out, and how do you think they ought to try to uh, approach to starting out based on conversations you've had and, and what you know mm-hmm. about conservation? I, I would say probably the, the, the first place uh, to go would be uh, to you know, other growers in the area that are, um, you know, trying to make, uh, you know, reduced till or no-till work for them as well. Uh, you know, th- th- there are a, a core of growers in this area uh, that have, uh, um, that are, you know, working together to, to um, you know, try to make this work. Again, I think just the communication aspect of it, and communicating to other growers um, in the area that are, that are working, uh, they're implementing no-till on their farms, and of course the researchers in the area as well, uh, that are uh, uh, working on no-till and cover crops as well. I'd like to thank Craig Bednars for taking the time to have this conversation about conservation farming in the Texas Panhandle and the big things in store for the West Texas A&M Semi-Arid Ag Systems Institute. 
To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Pivot Bio, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback to, on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jdoberstein at lessertermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2430. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider daily and weekly email updates in Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Senior Editor John Dauberstein. Thank you for listening. 